Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, October 20th. Today we have an interview with Beth Kindig. Mm-hmm. We talk Roku, Zoom, uh, even Fastly as yeah, well. Hit a, and a little Bitcoin at the end, uh-huh. uh, although that was just for about two minutes there. But Yeah, yeah. that was brief. Uh, but before we get to that, we have our stories for the week. What are you talking about? Uh, I'm talking about a, another exciting topic. It is corporate creditworthiness. Um, there's only six current companies that have a triple A rating. Um, and if you don't know what that is, I'll explain it when we talk about it. But yeah, the corporate credit is not, uh, it's, it's, there's a little high risk for default out there right now. Okay, and my story is the Disney debacle. Uh, we have two prominent fund managers basically battling it off. So mm-hmm. we're going to talk about that. And then current state of FinTwit. And then on the back half, as always, we have hot water, fuck, Mary kill, and anecdotal evidence. Let's go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome in. You want me to kick things off? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. This is the fun one. So Yeah, the Disney debacle. Last week, Dan Loeb, am I getting that right? Dan yes. Loeb yeah. from Third Point Capital wrote a letter to Disney stating that he would like to see them cut their dividend and go all in on streaming. I think a lot of people heard about this because it kind of got all over the news. Um, and so Loeb is an activist investor, and apparently he doesn't really – he doesn't traditionally have like a super long time horizon. Most activists don't, I imagine. You come yeah. in, you make change, basically get some shareholder value out of that change. Then and flip then, it to the long-term shareholders, right? right. Yeah. Um, but there's also some activists that are more long-term in nature. Anyways, so in his letter he stated – by reallocating a dividend of a few dollars per share, Disney could more than double its Disney Plus original content budget. So basically his argument was that cut the dividend entirely and just go all in on streaming. And there was a little bit of backlash to this. Um, some people were a fan of it. Some people weren't. But uh, Chris Bloomstrand, who runs his own fund, what's it? Semper Augustus? Semper Augustus, yeah. Um, Berkshire Hathaway expert, if anyone... I mean, he's the go-to guy on them. So. Yeah, he, uh, he's great investor, great writer. He wrote a rebuttal letter stating that he opposes Third Point's views. At one point in the article, he says, it seems concluding that the tens of billions, even hundreds of billions of dollars being spent today on content by traditional players like Warner Media, Discovery, Viacom, CBS, Fox, and Comcast's NBC Universal, plus upstarts like Netflix, Apple, Google, and whomever else will equate to healthy returns on capital for those who outspend their rivals. Spend on crap, and you might as well light money on fire. I, I think I agree with Chris here. I know you're going to yeah. ask a question here of whether I do agree. I think I do agree um, 100% yeah. with Chris, specifically with Disney. Now, if you're Netflix, you got to build a brand, and you kind of got to – you kind of got to light money on fire because you're trying to see what sticks. You don't have Mickey Mouse already. You don't have The Lion King, all the other whatever yeah. Disney things that they own, Star Wars and Marvel. Um, and I, I think mean, yeah. the, the big point he's trying to get to is that the competition in general in the streaming wars is going to lead to probably lower returns, uh, mm-hmm. lower value returns than they would have got if it was just them and Netflix. You know, I mean, it's going to be – the ROIC will – what's the whole thing? Uh, it, uh, 
if you're not high ROIC, ROIC business, and that's return tr- for anyone that doesn't know, that's return on invested capital. I know a lot of people don't know what right. that is. So that tends to attract a lot of competition, and in turn, the ROIC tends to decrease because competition provides dollars to the competitors. So it ends up being sort of, I mean, it's going to be a more crowded space as yeah. time goes on. And that's, I mean, that's not a hot take by any means, but I mean, we can see Netflix was the high ROIC business, correct? That's what you're inferring, right? And he goes on to state his ideas for capital allocation, as opposed to just streaming. He says, retire a portion of the debt used to acquire Fox, as well as the debt taken out for liquidity to cover COVID costs. Um, Make any bolt-on acquisitions that add to profitability and Disney's brand, repurchase shares, increase CapEx for the parks or the studio and media business. Which strategy do you like better um, if you were a Disney shareholder? Go uh, all in on streaming or keep doing what you're doing, essentially? I, I agree with Bloomstram. They have enough capital to invest in streaming. And since they could probably spend like a third or maybe only half of Netflix's budget and still get the same um, quality and value provided to the, the viewers just because of the Disney brand where you have a few hits per year, you can see them transitioning either from that movie business that was like eight movies or whatever per year, or it was probably more like 15 if you go from Pixar and Marvel and Star Wars like one a year. Uh, They didn't have to spend as much money uh, on like a ton of movies. They could just do a few, but they're all hits. They could do that on streaming, and they could be movies, TVs, documentaries, whatever. Mm -hmm. That could be a way to win, and it's just a competitive advantage because of their brand. You don't need to try to become Netflix when you don't have to be. Now, Amazon Prime has to try to do that. Apple TV Plus has to try to do that, and a lot of other players do, but Disney has an advantage where they don't, and they have a lot of other profitable businesses too. I mean, they're maybe not profitable right now. Right, true, true, yeah. But It just, I don't, I mean... If you're in Disney's position, do you think it's really a good idea to go all in on anything? No, no, no. Like, your advantage is that you are basically serving content, not necessarily content, but you're a media business across different channels. Yeah. Like, who can repeat that? I, I mean, there's very few people that have the IP and the value across all different channels that Disney has. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, the only thing I'd agree with is retiring the dividend um, because they have a lot of debt they're gonna have to pay that off uh, i'd rather just retire the dividend um, sure retire the dividend stuff. but that doesn't mean all those dollars go to solely yeah, streaming yeah I, I just you have to invest in what's going to have the high return on capital and since they're late to the game they have to use the advantage where they don't have to invest as much money but then they can invest in parks and other things that do have a high return on invested capital when streaming you know historically did but mm-hmm. i don't think i mean it's really easy to see that all the dollars pouring in aren't going to have the same returns Netflix had of the past five years. Right. Okay. What about your story? Okay. Uh, this was a Financial Times article, and it was outlining how and why corporate debt ratings have suffered over the last 40 years, and especially in 2020. So, a little history. Franco Mod. Oh gosh, could you? This is Modigliani. Mod- yeah, Modigliani um, and Merton Miller won a Nobel Prize in the '80s for starting up the M and M theory, which states that because interest payments are tax deductible, and now when you say interest payments, that's interest payments on a debt that a company is holding or a bond, uh, the value of an indebted company actually may be higher than one without, specifically because of that tax deductible uh, strategy that you can employ. Now, 
Couple that with the lowering of interest rates since the 80s. I mean, it's been four decades of lower interest rates, and now we're at zero for the foreseeable future, and corporate debt has ballooned. So it's just like, I mean, you... Uh, they, it's, easy, it's, you know, it's really easy to see why you're more inclined to borrow when yeah. interest rates are lower. I yeah, mean, it's and simple. and when there's those tax tax deductions, that was a perfect storm of all right, companies are going to borrow because it's useful for increasing earnings per share, and that's how typically how they get paid. And there's a nice quote in here from a financial analyst in the '80s. They said, "Equity is soft, debt is hard. Equity is forgiving, debt is insistent. Equity is a pillow, debt a sword." That's pretty eloquent, um, and I think it makes sense. So. Equity might dilute shareholders a lot, but debt, if you use it correctly, is better, but it can also lead to you know ba- easier bankruptcy, right? It's more alarming when you see high debt numbers, but it can be a like, huge advantage. Like, it can be mm-hmm. a huge tool to propel growth, and I think people tend to overlook that. Especially if you have... Um, you know, stable cash flows, and you can get debt at a low interest rate, which not everyone can get, um, because which I'll say below here. Um, so four decades ago, 65 companies had a triple A rating for their bonds. Now, triple A rating just means that's the highest level, that's the top creditworthiness by the ratings agencies. That was in uh, the 80s, about six percent of companies. Now, currently, there are only five total companies with triple A ratings. And only 14% even meet the single A threshold. That's, I mean, it's very concerning. And you can see that with COVID, you know, this debt has come back to bite investors and companies. There are around 88 bond defaults in Q2 on its own. The question I want to discuss mm. before we get to state of Fintwit is, will this shift companies from using debt to instead raising equity, even if it dilutes shareholders and you have to go in at a lower price than your current trading price? To make sure they have a resilient balance sheet, will we see a transition? You think from from debt, to debt equity? Yeah, using debt. Um, sorry, using equity to finance the company instead of debt. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we're starting to see that. Uh, why? I'm curious why the uh, credit worthiness is down. Is it higher? Just, so more stringent rules around like it's from just the rating stage. It's just the quality of the company. And how much debt they have. So it's basically a AAA rating means you're almost guaranteed that the company is going to pay you back. And then like a B or whatever, so, or even a triple C, that is means that the rating agency and they're not perfect, but they estimate that it's going to be. If you're a bondholder, you might not get made whole. You know so what I mean? hypothetically, if you have issued more debt, it makes it harder to have AAA rated debt in the future sure yeah because it essentially is risk yeah or to yeah because they lower that rating just to make it so it doesn't entice uh executives and you know it it gives it makes the debt like harder to pay off just you know intuitively like that old debt is still there so you're not going to be able to pay off that new one right away yeah i mean it was an advantage for people with resilient balance sheets in in 2020 i mean they've Companies with resilient balance sheets did really, really well. My only concern is, though, if interest rates stay this low, I don't know why companies would stop financing themselves with debt. It's really just the bad companies that are getting a lot of business, just like always. That, yeah, I mean, that's really always the problem with debt is like, yeah, you might have stable cash flows, and so it doesn't make it totally risky, but it, there's yeah. always that element of like potentially huge risk where mm-hmm. you can't pay it off at all. And we saw that in with some businesses due to covid if you have a lot yeah. of debt and all of a sudden your business is completely halted 
then you've got a problem. And then there's 88 bond defaults in Q2. That's a lot. Yeah. Okay. Um, current state of FinTwit. I'm going to be talking about the Gavin Baker article. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. You just want to do that first because I got three short ones. Yeah. So Gavin Baker wrote a piece on brick and mortar retail. Um, I thought it was one of the best articles I've read in a long time, just right off the bat. And it was basically just highlighting that, yes, we've seen a, a shift of potential future financials come sooner for the e-commerce businesses. And that's great, you know, and that's obviously boosted the stock prices of these e-commerce businesses. But what we're going to see is a long-term shift of the lead, category-leading brick-and-mortar retailers. And so he goes into this in depth. I thought the fourth paragraph specifically was really good, so I'm just going to read it. And then I have a question for you. Okay. So he says, The value of a physical retail infrastructure has been clear since Amazon made their largest acquisition ever, Whole Foods. Brick-and-mortar stores have tremendous online value in addition to enabling true omnichannel commerce. Nothing matters more for an e-commerce company than marketing efficiency expressed either as gross margin payback period or the ratio of customer acquisition cost to lifetime value. Brick-and-mortar stores significantly lower online customer acquisition cost by improving marketing efficiency, higher click-through rates, higher quality scores for ads. Consumers are more likely to trust a brand they have seen in the real world. Ironic in a world where customer acquisition cost is the new rent, that one of the best ways to lower your online rent is to pay rent offline for physical stores. Um, so he also says brick and mortar stores also enable BOPIS, buy online, pick up in store, and the in-store return of items purchased online, which consumers value. Economically, BOPIS or BOPIS right. is always will always be cheaper than same day delivery, and large numbers of consumers are highly cost sensitive. My question is, do you think e-commerce has a ceiling as a percentage of overall spend? It depends what you classify e-commerce as. I think there's I a good chance. I mean, du like directly, direct you deliver. buy online and it delivers to you. I feel oh, definitely, like yeah. that has a lower ceiling than people think. Yeah, this is why, I mean, if Amazon didn't have AWS, it would be a lot smaller. Um, and if they didn't, well, there's also some of the ancillary stuff like Prime Video, but yeah, I mean, Amazon.com has a ton of competitors right now, and I don't think the growth is infinite. Like, nothing has infinite growth. Um, and mm -hmm. there's a well-capitalized competitors like Walmart, Target, that are using their stores to their advantage now, uh, something they didn't do for, what, from until, like, what, 2017, 2016? Probably right when Amazon bought Whole Foods. It is, yeah, I mean, it's something to think about, like, Everyone was saying that e-commerce is going to kill brick-and-mortar retailer. Well, I think it's just going to kill bad brick-and-mortar retailers. So yeah. the good ones will survive, and it's just going to be um, a harsher environment if you're not on the top of your game. I mean, yeah, not only will they survive, I think they're going to benefit from all the capital that these other companies have poured into making it mm -hmm. really easy. You know, like consumers are aware of buy and buy online and pick up. Yeah. Like, you don't like if someone were to try to start that, like if Target were to try to have started that, it would have been really difficult, really cost intensive. But now it's really easy for any leading brick and mortar retailer to just add it to their functionality. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Sales and, strategy. Mm -hmm. And it's also going to help. Yeah, I mean, it's going to help. All right. I just think about it. Okay. Macy's, JCPenney, they're bad businesses in 2020. They're going to go bankrupt or they may have already gone bankrupt. I can't remember since I was gone this summer. It's going to help 
the leading brands and companies in the new categories. So the two examples I like are Revolve Group and Stitch Fix, where they're going to eat up all those new dollars, um, and Amazon will as well, where you know the brick and mortar is kind of going away, but then there's going to be room for expansion in, yeah, brick and mortar, but also in online, where e-commerce may not grow as a whole, you know, taking market share or whatever you'd like to talk about with that, but the winners will be able to, you know, eat market share from yeah. like that total pie, even I mean, if the whole pie isn't growing. Even during, I, I think Gavin Baker put this in his article, but even during this COVID crisis, Amazon's market share of e-commerce spend decreased. Yeah, I, that was a interesting note. That was a, like people don't people don't think about that. Like they now that it's so apparent how much capital or how good of a business that really was. Yeah, it's attracting a lot more competition. Yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see who wins. I mean, Walmart is putting up a big fight here, um, and yeah, it's cool. I don't know. Yeah. It, I, right. I don't invest in those companies, but it's cool to see um, who who will win. Yeah. All right. What do you have? Current state of Fintwit. Okay. Here's an interesting story. Don't know what book it's from, but here's the quote. Uh, it starts out with this, kind of in the middle of a sentence. Buffett did that after the Capital Cities deal in 1985. He sat for three long years without buying a single common stock, and then. When Coca-Cola fell to attractive levels, he staked a fourth or so of Berkshire's market value on that one stock. Patience followed by fairly aggressive conduct. Yeah. Do you think you could ever sit for three years, assuming you had a permanent capital structure, without ever making an investment? That's three years. That's basically just slightly longer than we've ever been in investing. Hypothetically, I would like to say yes, but I know for damn sure that I cannot and currently, I mean, at least currently, I mean, the, he was like sixty at that point, so maybe when you're older, you know. But if I mean, imagine you're getting more and more influxes, basically, of capital. Yeah. Like, I guess if your capital is fixed, it's possible. If your companies are performing really well and they are, you know, fairly priced, and you don't want to add to them, but if you're getting more and more capital, that's really hard to do. Yeah, I probably think, not good to do. Well, it ended up being really smart for them, but yeah, I think but you have to have the more Ber- capital. If you have the Berkshire structure, it works out. But if you don't have something like that, it probably yeah. won't. Yeah. All right. Is that gonna? Is that? It I have no. I have, I have two more. Okay. Sorry, I just gotta open these tweets. Okay, this one's another Buffett one. I don't know why. Um, here's a riddle for you. See if you can solve it. Which Warren Buffett deal is this? He paid forty times earnings for a capital light business with large growth opportunity, loyal customers, and a winner-take-all economics. Multi-bagger over a six-year period for which it was money losing for five consecutive years pursued growth via discounting you're probably not going to get it but i have no idea buffalo evening news what makes you think i would even come close to getting well that? no, no. <laughs> I, I knew you weren't going to get that but it's just interesting to see that that was what the business was like in the uh, what years i think it was 90s yeah when newspapers were a thing they were they were great businesses interesting all right what's your third one? Third one one second hope it's not buffett again or else <laughs> Okay. Uh, oh, it's Coca Cola again. So two for two on Coca Cola. Uh, right. Basically, the it's too long to read here, but there was a town in Florida where there's this one man in the 20s and 30s. He was a banker. He noticed that everyone was still buying Coca Cola, and he to- told the oh. whole town to buy Coca Cola shares. And now the town is the richest uh, town in the United States, I think, or at least was at one point on a per capita GDP. And everyone there's like. 67 of their inhabitants they were dubbed coca-cola millionaires that are just living off of their dividends on coca-cola shares 
I mean, that dude must have been such a good salesman. Like, imagine getting your entire town to buy the same stock. But then it's kind of a camaraderie around it, you know, like, we're the Coca-Cola town. They probably were buying nonstop Coca-Cola. Yeah, and the stock did phenomenal, so. Mm, Good, I mean, good for them. Good for that dude. He's probably (laughs) made a business out of it. Well, he's dead now, but. Too bad. Um, okay, well, that's going to do it, right? Yeah. Okay, it. and next we have our interview with Beth Kindig. What was your favorite part? Okay, well, I guess the whole thing when we talk about Roku, how she identified that, we talk about Zoom, you know, investing in that currently, and then we talk about Fastly for a bit. I like and, the Fastly part. Well, I, I like it because, you know, we had another smart investor on, Tim Byers, who loves Fastly, yeah. but and they're both kind of in the same market. They both invest in SaaS and they're technology focused and then beth she doesn't she's what quote cautious is that what she likes to say cautious yeah. about fastly she's not shorting or anything but it's not something she likes so it's good to get that other take um because you want to see those contradicting opinions yeah all right here you go cox panoramic wi-fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices you'll get real-time alerts oh like this one so you don't have to worry about malware or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link and now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Today we are welcomed by Beth Kindig. Beth is one of our favorite tech analysts here at Chit Chat Money, and you can find all her work at beth.technology. Am I getting that right? Yes, exactly. Um, uh, Before we get into our first question, Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really, Um, really happy to be here. So how'd you get started just to begin with? Why'd you choose investing? Um, I suppose I chose investing because I like to make money. I have found that I can make other people money and um, I find it to be very exciting. So I guess when people talk about investors, they talk about like passive investing and active investing. I think that there's kind of a new movement for ed- like educated investing, which is like people who they may not manage stocks every single day in a super active manner, trading manner, but they still want to be really educated and find that edge on the market. So when that started to happen, especially around tech a couple of years ago, I feel like um you know, I was perfectly suited for it. Um, so I started to cover lots and lots of tech companies, um, hundreds of them about 10 years ago. Uh, this was around 2009, 2010. And so when I think about like tech growth, I think, you know, I've probably been doing it as long as anyone can possibly be doing it because I started that long ago. Uh, most of that was in the private markets. It was a lot of the startup scene. Um, And I worked with like hundreds of startups on like how to talk about your product, position your product, why are you better than the competitors? And I got to kind of see who went on to be, you know, big, a big success on the public markets. Um, So I guess when like you say like why investing, you know, maybe like why tech analysis, I, I think it would be hard for me to wake up and do anything else. Like I've been doing it for so long that um, it's just kind of how I spend my day and if anything that I write can help other people make money, then that's pretty yeah. cool. And have you found that the early adoption of products that you experience in the private markets has translated well to public markets? Like is the investing style similar? Very, very similar. I would say that um, private tech investors and their um, 
education, including, you know, mine around how to find that needle in the haystack um, has proven to be completely invaluable for me when I analyze the public markets. And there's certain things like they'll, like a lot of the Facebook investors early, they went ahead and invested in every social media app, every social media company, because there was just a mega trend. And now I don't like invest in every single productivity tool on the market, but I'm not, you know, I'm not shy about it. Like I'll, I'll find a trend that I think a lot of budget, a lot of money is moving into and I'll load up on, you know, one or two of those pure plays. Maybe I'll even go three um, because I know that like diversifying across a big trend is, is going to produce a big winner and then, a, and then a second really great winner. And maybe I'll cut my losses on the third, but it's really about those trends because what VCs are doing and the private markets is like, they don't have a lot of concrete information on the company uh, performing. So they can't really look at like financial records and say, um, oh, they had, you know, 80% year over year growth. They've got to look at the trends. And so that has really influenced me, absolutely. Right. All right. We're going to get more into your process, but I mean, you've been in the industry a long time and it is a male dominated industry. Have you had any hardships or difficulties or any pros of, uh, you know, being a female in this industry, or do you have any tips for any woman starting out as a female in finance? Yeah. I mean, I think we could have an entire podcast episode on that topic. Um, Duly noted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I would say is like a couple things. One is I would say that there's some fellas who are super supportive and they'll reach out and they'll say, keep going. Like we know, I know you're, you know, one of a few women in the space. You're one of a few women on Twitter. Uh, just keep going. You're doing a great job. So, um, if you happen to be hearing this, thank you. Like I truly like appreciate that encouragement. Um, let's see, as far as like the broader topic goes, I would say that like it can create an echo chamber where um, what I have found, and in fact, studies have proven like the more diverse the management team, the more, com the more the company is successful. So when they've looked at tech companies that have a really diverse management, those companies outperform those that are more homogenous. And it's because it becomes an echo chamber and it can like become too much confirmation bias. So I think that like if I were on a thread and everybody like looked like me and thought like me, I would probably get off that thread and go find a different thread as an investor because that confirmation bias, I think can really hurt your gains. Um, and, you know, when I think about um, like the finance industry, like for me as a woman, I would say that uh, I rarely come across other women in this industry but I've had an easier time in finance than in tech. Um, I think like when you talk about Silicon Valley and um, you know, I've heard some horror stories around maternity leave. Like I've heard really bad um, experiences around real junior male employees being promoted over more senior women. Um, you know, you might have like Sheryl Sandberg on like the management of Facebook, but how many women are moving beyond management to senior management to director to, to vice president, like that migration. And it would seem like Silicon Valley is the area where that would be um, like, you know, there would be more equal rights, like it's progressive, right? There's all this investment money pouring in, but I've actually found that it is um, like one of the worst offenders. And so I think that like from somebody who has been in Silicon Valley in San Francisco and mainly been in the tech industry. And now, you know, I've, I've been working in the finance industry for the last few years. Um, I much prefer the finance industry, to be honest. So, um, you know, I think that 
it might be surprising for people to hear that about Silicon Valley, but they've got a they've got a little ways to go when it comes to uh, addressing those issues. So, oh, I mean, that's that's very interesting. Um, yeah, how, I would have thought it was the other way around. Yeah, but yeah, it, I think from the outside you think like these are big progressive thinkers, but um, you know they you know there's actually been somewhat controversial comments made around um, how VCs will choose their who they invest in. And, um, you know, I think that overall, in my experience, um, tech is not as friendly towards women as finance. So that's, that's good to know. That's good to hear. All right. Uh, we'll get into the process then for how you actually make your investments. Um, you know, the slogan on your newsletter, which I think, you know, has thousands of people get that newsletter. I'm one included. Uh, the slogan is the best gains come from getting in front of the herd, which you mentioned a little bit before. How do you do that? What specific research do you go after? Yeah, so it takes a lot of time, like a lot of time. And I think that um, that's where, um, whether you use my service or another service, I know that you guys have worked with the Motley Fool in the past and a couple others, like get a good service because I think in order to get in front of the herd, you're gonna have to spend a lot of time. We're, we're like the herd is interesting because it's not just like, you know, in your mind, you might think it's a lot of people, but it's actually a lot of machines. So that's good news though, because the thing about machines is like, they can't really, um, you know, in a granular manner, figure out like what makes one tech company better than the other. Um, machines are basically looking for a lot of natural language processing. So what is the overall sentiment on Twitter or other um, sites that it can scrape? Um, they're looking for like price trend movements, like is it breaking, um, you know, certain supports and, you know, breaking resistance and whatnot. And so like in that way, like if you have the right, if you, if you have the right angle um, and you have the hours to spend, you can beat the machines. And that's, that's, you know, a big deal because once the machines pile in, it's, that's always the big goal. The way that I do it, and we did kind of talk about it, is I talk, I look really closely at trends, trends that I truly believe have a very long runway. Um, so I'll choose like a trend and I know like a lot of budgets are coming in to that trend, a lot of migration, and I'll start to like really hone in on the products and I'll look for the products that have an advantage over, over the others. So it's not just market analysis and strategy, it's actually like getting your hands on the product, looking at why is there um, maybe a little more adoption with that product than the others. Um, so I would say like micro trends is a big thing. Um, I do use a technical analyst. I think when you're looking at tech, um, what I have found is even the very best tech companies go through massive sell-offs and it can really force your hand. I mean, I'm not going to say it forces weak hands if, because it, you don't have to have a weak hand to not want to experience a 30 to 40% drawdown on a stock. Um, yeah. so maybe I find that one day, what's that? Maybe, even, sorry, maybe even in one day with, uh, some of those companies. In one day. Yeah, exactly. And I find that technical an uh, analysis can actually protect you a little bit there. So um, yeah. it's a little bit of both getting in front of the herd, but then um, reading where the herd is going and when and, and using that technical analysis as well. What does your funnel look like? So sort of from in terms of thesis development, where do you from idea like new idea to hitting the buy button? What does that process look like for you? Yeah, so this goes back to, um, so I have been to probably over a thousand tech conferences. I work really horizontally, um, and I think that that's kind of important. So when I'm hitting the button on a trend, 
I'm not stuck like in one trend. Like I talk to in, in, uh, institutional analysts and like they're only media analysts and they'll over, like they'll constantly recommend Snapchat like over and over again. Yeah. Um, and this is not a comment on Snapchat. I'm just giving an example. And it's because they don't really have a large like understanding of, of the wider verticals of all the verticals in tech. So I'm like scanning, you know, and like in Q3 2019, I know like the market turned really cold on cloud. And I was like, you guys are nuts. Like cloud is definitely capturing all the budgets right now. And lo and behold, COVID came around. Um, without COVID, it still would have been a strong trend. Um, so anyway, so it's kind of like a football team, you know, like I don't think the quarterback can run it into the end zone over like by themselves. So I don't, I don't try to push the button. I identify trends and I have an internal meeting with my team and I say, hey, like, please watch this trend. Here are some top names. I really want to get into these names. And I pass it off to a portfolio manager and a technical analyst who runs it into the end zone, if you will. And I mean, he has complete liberty to buy the stock when he thinks it's best. Um, and if he needs to get back out and then get back in, um, he has, um, you know, full, uh, you know, I trust him completely to do that. Um, so when it comes to pushing the button on tech, what I found through what he, how he handles it is that it takes more than one person because you have in-depth analysis and then you have someone who's trading the markets. But the other thing is to, um, it might take a couple times to get into the right tech stock because they can sell off so fast um, and to not let that affect your conviction. Do you, having your background sort of in private investing, like you mentioned, um, do you pay attention to that still? Like, do you pay attention to a lot of where the private dollars are going as sort of um, when you're like, identifying trends? Maybe like a future indicator almost? Yeah. Yeah, I do. So it's, it's like juggling. Like I, I have to like keep one, you know, I have to keep an eye on the active market and like where the public market trends are. But yeah, I mean, I go to, um, I go to conferences all the time that are more emerging tech startup related. I just was at an edge computing, um, conference and most of that is probably not going to come to market for another year or two. Um, so I'm always hunting and looking for who strategically, because I mean, some of it is, um, through the acquisition process. So you'll see, uh, like edge computing is a great example. Um, there's going to be some really scrappy little startups there that'll probably get acquired, mm -hmm. um, because the bigger players aren't going to be able to like develop that themselves. So when you start to see those acquisitions, that's kind of a, a you know, that's a good sign. Tel uh, telehealth is a great example. Uh, there's a private company that VC dollars are just pouring into right now. They're trying to compete with Teladoc. Um, but you know, that says to me, hey, Teladoc's probably a good, good stock right now. So right. watching all that is key. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you're focusing a lot on, um, whether it's through the tech conferences or whatnot, you're focusing a lot on like the product itself. And we're, yeah. it seems like we're kind of at a crossroads now where we've seen this huge dispersion between the software companies and the more traditional businesses, thanks to COVID and people, a lot of traditional finance investors are like, well, there's no moat in any of these businesses. It's just a really good product. I'm curious if you think having a superior product in and of itself is a moat for a business. It's a superior product and moat. I would say no, but I would also say that you should probably get really comfortable with there being few moats in technology. The whole industry is created from disruption. So it's all about how to disrupt, um, you know, 
the other company, the competitor. Uh, it's very agile. So uh, it requires keeping up on a lot of product launches and announcements and things like that. Um, so when there are, of course, moats, I would say the most, you know, the moats that might be the sturdiest or the most protected would be, um, you know, high switching costs. So does it take a lot for your development developer team to like relearn a language or relearn a platform? Um, what are, you know, it, it, could there be downtime and, and will your customers have a, a less enjoyable experience because you're about to switch and it could create some friction there? Um, so like when I think about Facebook, I'll just give you an example because Facebook is so widely understood to some extent is like, I don't think they had a moat in social media until they launched Audience Network, which was an ad exchange that started to mine um, data, whether you were in Facebook or not. And it was mining data because it was inside of all of the other apps uh, acting as an ad exchange. So if you had gaming apps or you had um, finance apps, they were using Facebook's ad exchange product to serve those ads. And that's when the moat started to set in because they were able to get in millions of apps. Um, I think they, I don't want to say millions, but it was close to about a million apps. They were in the high 800,000 or something. And that, and that was the moat was that like, now you've got so much data from so many people that even if a social media app has a billion users to compete with you, um, it's really all about like how much data you were, they were collecting. So, um, there are very, I'd say there are very few moats, um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't, um, you can't, um, forecast a great stock that doesn't have a moat, if that makes right. sense. Yeah, no, that, that does make sense. Um, and speaking on products again, I mean, did you ever find there was a product or maybe a software app that you loved a lot and you never ended up owning shares in the company for any specific reason? Does that ever occur where you kind of you see the product and then you look at the, the financials or maybe the industry and you're like, all right, I can't invest in this company. Yeah. I would say that, um, for the most part, I try not to be emotional because like, or love, you know, um, I actually didn't like Roku's um, channel very much, but I was a big bull. Um, you know, just as an example of when I invest and I don't like the product, didn't like that particular channel. Um, and we'll go into why I really like it as a company and a stock, I guess. But, um, as far as, you know, like Netflix comes to mind. Um, I was on like the news, you know, Fox Business News and a couple other channels when Apple TV and Disney were coming out. And I was like, you know, everyone was like, oh, Netflix is going to get dethroned. And I was like, I was like, there's no way Netflix is going to get dethroned. Like, um, you know, with subscription video on demand, these guys have it cornered. Um, but the debt obviously is a concern. And so I didn't invest in that. But I mean, my prediction um, was right and I should have. So for sure, like CNBC and the headlines get the best of me and I try to turn off my TV because of it. Um, I think right. that, yeah. Okay. It's hard. Sense. It is hard. Like there's times when you really like a product and you want to like the business and you yeah. just, it's, it's hard to stay unemotional yeah. uh, during those periods. Um, yeah. All right. We want to talk about Roku and we know, uh, you've been a big advocate, big bull for Roku. I believe it was your largest holding for a while. I think you mentioned that on the seven investing show, right? Uh, Roku, Zoom, and NVIDIA are the, yeah, the three okay. largest. Yeah. So we're uh, big fans of the business as well. And instead of just giving each other confirmation bias, we thought it might <laughs> be fun to play devil's advocate. And sure. I, I actually took to Twitter and looked for some of the 
sort of bare theses, what could go wrong scenarios. And so we've drafted up a few and we'll let you sort of refute these. I'll go first. The first one is that connected TV is really just a commodity business. So Roku has no real competitive advantage. Yeah, so I think they're probably referring to the devices at that point because, um, you know, like the smart TV, um, because Roku is actually an ad exchange, so it's an ad platform. So um, the whole point is, you know, you're reaching audiences and you're going to monetize those audiences through ads. And so um, it doesn't matter if it's your mobile phone, your tablet, your smart TV, if it's a separate set-top box, um, Roku's going to capture every audience it possibly can that's streaming OTT. Um, so in that way, um, you know, an ad platform is not a commodity. Okay. okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I do think a lot of people, um, they did focus on the hardware when it came out because that's what it feels like. It was just a hardware business, but people don't realize when you just look, you know, you just got to look at the income statement and it, it's they make all, it's they, right there. It's right there. They make all their money on advertising. Um, but I'll get into the next one here. Uh, a lot of people say because Roku competes with big tech, big tech will be able to sell their TVs and hardware for next to nothing and enter the market and compete with them. This leaves the competition and Roku like obsolete. They're just going to drive down the margins. Yeah, I think that we already see Roku selling their hardware next to nothing and letting it impact their margins. And they're doing that in order to, um, you know, become as ubiquitous as possible while the window is open. So we're dealing with a massive market. I think people confuse subscription video on demand with ad video on demand. So Netflix has been around for a long time. Right. Ad video on demand has not. Um, and we know that because pay TV dollars, which is truly the market underneath the hardware is the pay TV dollars, the people that pay, you know, NBC and the football, CB, you know, CBS and NBC and ABC, the, you know, those, those Budweiser, Geico, Pizza Hut, all that stuff, um, those big brand dollars. Yeah. So um, we know that it's a very um, nascent market because pay TV ad dollars have not migrated. So and in general, we still have a lot of problems over live sports, OTT, um, live, really strong live news options, things like that. It's a very, very new market. Um, so when it comes to the big tech giants, um, you know, Amazon and Google are both trying to enter that market or they've entered the market and they're trying to compete very, you know, head to head with Roku. Right now, Roku is the number one. So how the question is probably not, uh, what if Google and Amazon, uh, knockout Roku. The question is, how has Roku done it this, this, for this long for the, how is Roku still number one? You know? Right. Yeah. They, they've been competing with them forever. Um, forever. So, yeah. They have, what is it? 43 million active yeah. accounts amidst all that competition. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have any concern about Xfinity or Comcast at all? Cause I know they're trying to enter this market as well. Um, maybe like keeping people from switching over to Roku. No, because I see it as international. Um, I see the, the what's remaining as all international. So Com Comcast isn't really an international. Uh, they've already player. captured what they're going to capture in the United States. Yeah. And I think it just starts to get too fragmented. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, when it comes to like Comcast and NBC, it, it's like, you know, it's kind of like Apple, like Apple has more cash than any company on earth. I mean, more than banks. And 
they could not, I mean, they're not doing that well in the OTT space, you know? Um, so I think it's a really hard market and I would look at the person, you know, the, the company and the people, the management team that has been killing it from day one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that leads to our third point, which is that Roku has no brand awareness internationally. I did have a lot of people from the UK in my Twitter mentions saying, what is Roku? So how, I mean, does their domestic success translate um, internationally? Or is it all about product? Or is it all about window? Sorry, product. I was just going to say, is it all about just, you know, how the product won versus big tech? Can they just do that internationally? Yeah, so I think that where their entry will be is that they are the cheapest, best performing operating system. So when you look at like TCL, a lot of people are like, oh, TCL is going to dump Roku. It'd be more of a concern that Roku would dump TCL because when you're a, like a, a manufacturer, you want the worst thing that could happen to you is that you choose an operating system that has bugs or that doesn't have all of the channels that people would want. So Roku has the most channels and it's the most solid, best performing operating system um, with no bugs. So when you put it into, you know, when you partner with Roku, um, your smart TVs aren't gonna have any issues. And no matter what channel comes out, people are gonna be able to get it on your TV. So I think that the smart manu TV manufacturers need Roku more than the other way around. Um, and that's because they've built a, a superior product. They have, you know, the operating system, the hardware, they have this Roku channel that's getting better every day. And um, so when you're entering other markets, um, you want that bug-free, um, you know, operating system with the most apps. And Peloton chose Roku. You're gonna, you'll start to notice like a lot of people will choose Roku first for their apps. And it's because like they're the number one and they're the bug-free and they just work very seamlessly. Okay. Well, so that will probably be their entry into other markets. Yeah. Right. Right. And then the last one people have, they, you know, they say that even though they have a good product, um, they have no moat. And I know you mentioned before that moat may not even matter in this case, but is, is there any concern with that? I just, and instead of saying they have no moat, I look at why have they been able to do so well um, and uh, stave off these huge competitors, Amazon and Google all, all along. And the other thing, it goes back to saying like connected TV, ad video on demand is so new um, and it pay TV ad dollars have not migrated yet. So um, when it, you say it doesn't have a moat, my response would be, um, but it's an incredible pure play in connected TV ads. And I, I want to be invested in connected TV ads. So I'm going to go with Roku. Okay. Well, another name that you have talked about before is Zoom. I think yeah. you and Austin were like some of the earliest yeah. ones kind of, but I, I believe Beth, you were the earliest to zoom if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, so want to ask a few questions about them last week, maybe two weeks ago, Michael Berry, who is portrayed in the big short by Christian Bale for anyone yeah. that doesn't know um, said, we're at peak zoom. Do you agree? Do you think we'll ever depend on zoom as much as we do today? I think that we, it'll always feel like we're at peak Zoom. It's one of those companies and those products that seems to be way over its skis, but in reality, you're dealing with phenomenal product market fit. That's where like the private markets, I think are a little bit sharper with this. They truly believe, the, the private markets truly believe that one product can rule them all, so to speak. And so they're constantly looking for that one product and they're looking for like where where does like user adoption occur so seamlessly and, and become viral where, you know, you're sharing it 
with everyone around you um, that it can just eat up the addressable market. And so I think the private markets kind of have that mentality where the public markets, it just seems to come from a lot of caution around tech. It's like, oh my gosh, like what if Zoom pulls back? Like, you know, I mean, I had said in another interview, I mean, we're dealing with a company that posted up 355% year over year revenue. I don't think we've ever seen that in any company in the history of the stock market. If we have, I like, I, I look, I mean, please let me know. I would love to um, know who else has posted that. That is showing you exceptional product market fit. And I personally don't stand in the, in front of those trains. I, I get out of the way um, and I, you know, jump on board. <laughs> um, but I basically was early Zoom. I covered it at the IPO in September. I said to my premium people, like Zoom is, is going to be a viral product because of its mechanism at getting rid of passwords and sign-ons and right. having to download software and every device and all this friction that Cisco and the others create. And then in January, Knox entered around 62. So we have an early track record with it. Um, but um, you know, as far as peak Zoom usage goes, I think that can create a lot of great headlines, but that's again why like, I think it's good to turn off CNBC and nothing wrong with CNBC other than it'll fill your head with um, headlines that right. are more like clickbait, you know? And it's for, um, it's for entertainment, it's for entertainment, so. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say, that, you know, I'd say to him like, tell me where is it going to go after 355%? Is it, is it really going to settle down to the 40%, 50% range? Mm -hmm. I, I think we have a long runway right now for Zoom. And I think the financials show that. So, yeah. Okay. Um, they use a, um, so they don't use a usage-based pricing model and the concern with a lot of people. Per seat. Per seat. Sorry. They, yeah, they, a, they use a per seat model. They, right. they use a per seat model, not a usage-based model. Um, so do you think a hybrid work from home environment would affect them at all? Would people, you know, would it diminish any of their pricing power with their enterprise customers or to make them so maybe someone would choose less seats um, if they're, you know, going to the office more often? Yeah, I think, you know, are we going to see another 355% year over year revenue quarter? Probably not. Um, but is Zoom going to continue to lead the pack of cloud software and productivity tools? I, I think there's a huge chance it does. Um, when it comes to the next phase of what we're going through is shelter in place or work from home, this kind of goes back to Roku, which is why I always liked Roku too from IPO is that I like the management team and I ha you have to eventually figure, you have to eventually say the person who did this is going to keep doing it. Right. You know, it's like I, so I trust man, the Zoom management to continually innovate, to serve the needs of web conferencing and, um, you know, productivity tools, basically. Yeah. Eric, it's Eric Yen. Is that what, am I getting that right? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how to say his name, but he, yeah, he is good. Yeah. Um, another note, you at the beginning of COVID mentioned that you are interested to see whether or not a per seat based pricing model or a usage based pricing model would fare better if companies started cutting their budgets. Did you find anything out on that? Well, it seemed like per seat got hit first. Uh, we saw it with like Alterix and a couple others, um, Slack even, I'm, I'm, a Slack per, I'm a Slack investor. Um, you know, we, we saw that some of the per seat got hit um, and now we're hearing usage might get hit. Uh, some of the pull forward usage, we saw that with Fastly. Um, Netflix had warned way back when, and I know it's not a cloud company, but 
you know, they had talked about the pull forward right from the very get go on subscriptions. Um, so this is where I, where I'm at. I always plan for both scenarios, but and I'm not a bear or a bull. I never will be. I always am going to look for the best stocks in the market. That is just how I operate. But, and I feel like everything is going to be an opportunity to, to find a different stock if I needed to. But um, I think that the longer this draws out, we will see more of an effect on cloud software because, and that may seem like common sense for every industry, but tech has kind of had a lot of optimism around it. And I think the longer this goes on, we're dealing with budgets, budgets are going to get really constrained and it's going to become maybe an issue. So, you know, Q3, Q4, um, could we could start to see more effects and that may seem like a no brainer, but I don't think the market is fully priced that in. Okay. No, that definitely makes sense with where things are trading right now. Um, last one on zoom specifically, I know this is, it's hard to say with a 10 year time horizon, but where do you see zoom looking like in 10 years or maybe even a little shorter? Um, what other avenues do they have for growth here? Yeah, I had written about like hardware as a service, which would be Zoom phone, which they had already had. Um, they were already developing that prior to COVID, but like um, there's really no reason to have telecom hardware anywhere. So when you drive by like dentists or restaurants, hairstylists um, who have all been seriously affected by COVID and, and they shelter in place, like there's no reason for them to pay for um, phone bills and Zoom is working on that problem, which is how do you, just like they worked on like so seamlessly being able to just hit a button and be on a video conference. What mm -hmm. if you could just hit a button on your phone and make and make the call, you know, and it's not like Skype where you have to have the connection or, you know, pay per, you know, it, I don't know, Skype is a little more clunky. You have to have like the software downloaded and everything. And um, what if you could just immediately start making Zoom calls? Um, and then, you know, you, in the middle of the country, there's hundreds and thousands of phone lines and vacant buildings right now. Um, so that's kind of where I see Zoom going, more phone rather than just video. Okay, that's cool. That's, yeah, that's that is interesting. an interesting idea. Um, we have some extra questions that we yeah, put yeah. down here in case we had more time. Do I you think want me we, to go or you, you want to go? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I can hit the first okay, one. Go. Okay, the first one is you've mentioned that you're a little cautious when it comes to Fastly, which okay. ended up being... Rather good timing. Yeah, good timing for this interview. <laughs> Why are you cautious about Fastly? Okay, so I understand that there are a lot of people that see, you know, the content edge network as the route to edge computing. So, okay, a couple of things. First of all, uh, we'll talk about edge computing in just a minute, but when it comes to CDNs, which is truly what Fastly is, um, there's a lot of competition and it's been competitive for 20, 20, let's see, what year is it? About 25 years. Um, and so I tend to look for really brand new markets. And now I understand that, you know, content app developers will say that they're delivering content under 20 milliseconds, therefore it's edge. And I get that, but when I'm going to invest in edge computing, I'm looking for new use cases. So I'm looking for, you know, the people that are going to solve autonomous vehicles that are going to solve robotics manufacturing because, you know, the robot where the robotics can um, communicate so seamlessly and so quickly that we can start to bring manufacturing away from China into the United States. I'm talking like big problems that are going to be solved from edge computing. I'm not talking about Shopify's app, um, you know, the content being downloaded way faster because of where it's hosted. Um, I'm not talking about, um, you know, like that, that to me is an older market. And I saw the pull forward happen with 
the coronavirus and I get it because more people were home, more people were shopping, you know, and needing that content much faster. But for me, I like brand new markets. I like um, few competitors. And if there are competitors, I'm just saying that CDNs are sharky waters. Akamai is there, obviously Cloudflare, Fastly, those guys, and there's a couple other smaller ones, but then you've got Amazon moving in and Microsoft, they're not going to let people on their territory for edge computing when it comes to true edge servers and where this is going to go. They say like Gartner says 75% of the, you know, content and data is going to come from the edge, but that's probably going to be answered by the people who have the origin servers, which is Amazon and Microsoft. So I just think Fastly is not as much of a slam dunk as the market thinks. Um, and so I'm kind of, I just kind of voiced that like back when they were doing, when it was, you know, skyrocketing is like, for me, I don't see a slam dunk. It doesn't mean they can't pull it off. And I'm always for everyone making gains, but I try to really stick with slam dunks. So. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. All right. Before we get to the wrap up questions, I have one that is kind of off the radar. I think you wrote something before that you are an owner of Bitcoin. Um, and you said that yeah. people misunderstand that it reduces costs within the fiat system, if I'm correct. Um, so why do you own Bitcoin? And, and you may not anymore, but, um, and then why I do did. they reduce, why does it reduce friction? Okay, so Bitcoin allows you to pay, like if I wanna pay you right now, um, I don't have to go through the centralized system and, and that reduces fees. So um, the system, our, our financial system is completely bogged down by fees and by middlemen. And this isn't just like you and me wanting to like fight against like the federal government or something like that. This is like truly like even like hedge funds and big bond uh, purchases and things like that. Like they want, they want a way to transfer money without it costing so much and being so delayed. Um, so like we run our site off Stripe. Stripe like completely robs us. And like, I, I totally get that people like the product, but um, they take, you know, uh, three to 4%. And then anytime that there's like a dispute, they want you to pay for the, it, it just constantly paying for these transactions. And there's no reason to, because I could just pay you directly. Um, Square is super interesting to me there as well, because I know Jack Dorsey is really into blockchain and um, whether you want to call it, whether you want to be into the Bitcoin market or if you just want to be in the blockchain market, it change is going to come and people are going to adopt it very quickly because it solves all of those fees that are just like, they just pile up. It's one of the most yeah. broken areas basically across most industries. I would say financial payments and decentralization and blockchain have the biggest pain that they can solve and healthcare is the, probably the other one. We're like, we're solving serious like, um, debt and, 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 and bills and, you know, payments like that don't need to be, um, you know, piling up like that. So yeah. Bring, just bringing all those products to the 21st century, right. That's kind of the, For sure. yeah, those are two areas where, uh, so Bitcoin, you know, back to Bitcoin, like, I think people look at it as like this, like really like rebel like thing, but it's actually not, it solves a lot of problems. It was very genius protocol and it, allows you and I to pay each other without having to pay some middleman that we don't need anyways. So. Okay. okay. Final wrap up questions. We ask these to all our interviewees. First okay. one, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? One financial saying that I disagree with, how about like, it's kind of like a philosophy. I don't look for cheap stocks. So um, the idea that I'm going to find like discounted stocks and buy them up um, or cheap stocks. Like when I look at the list of tech 
companies, let's say take cloud software, anything that's like a 10 price to sales or below, like I've just found my garbage list, you know, like these are the companies that are least likely to make revenue in the future, that are least likely to become profitable, that have the worst margins and probably will never find product market fit. Like for me, like I don't go with discounted companies. Um, so that would probably be the one thing I'm not saying pay, you know, 50 price to sales, but, um, I am saying that, you know, this mentality to find companies that are discounted or cheap, um, that may work for Warren Buffett. I don't feel like it works in tech and he most certainly didn't think so either, or that, you know, Berkshire didn't think so either with Snowflake, which they bought into at like a, I think they bought it around a 40 price to sales. So in my industry, cheap in value is not good. Okay. That's cool. All right. The last question, what is one piece of advice you have for anyone starting out in investing or if you want to make uh, a career out of investing? Okay. I guess one thing that I would say is, um, I guess I will end with, um, do I have a couple minutes or? Yeah. 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 We can, we can always crop. Yeah. Like when I, when I think about the tech industry and the tech and tech stocks, like what I, but the, my piece of advice would be to not look at this, like the dot-com boom and bust. Like I know tech is very expensive. I'm not saying it won't revert to a mean, but basically what we're he seeing, like if you pay attention um, to uh, the TikTok ban or the foundries and manufacturing for semiconductors being relocated or um, what we just saw with coronavirus and COVID where everyone suddenly had to migrate to the cloud and and start using tech to communicate. Um, we're dealing with um, the industry that's going to determine the world's most valuable economy, basically. And the United States government, China, have clearly communicated that to us, like very clear language, you know, um, as they're, they're fighting over tech. And um, so the last time that this happened was not the dot-com boom and bust. It was probably electricity and the railroad. And I wrote this to my subscribers the other day, which is like, um, you know, if the market starts to sell off, like, don't think this is the end of tech. Um, this is just the beginning. And um, I would say, stay close to this industry if you want real gains. I mean, I know that seems like I'm biased, but I can promise you that I'm actually just trying to encourage people to not be afraid of tech, to not be scared about high valuations. Um, again, I think we're trading top heavy right now. Like, I think that, you know, Anytime you find really strong tech companies between around 20 price to sales, that's that's a good time to enter. 25 price to sales, 30 for the best. Um, that's those are bargains. So I think that if you come back to me in five years, you're going to see that that became more of a trend than you know um, these super low price to sales and everyone thinking like tech is going to trade super cheap or that there's going to be a huge crash, etc. Yeah. So. My, okay. Yeah, my advice would be pick pick good tech stocks. <laughs> that, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's good advice. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, sure coming from me. Um, thank you, Beth. Had a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, take care. Thanks. Welcome back in. Thanks again to Beth Kindig for joining us. I had a fun conversation, but now we have hot water. Mm -hmm. um, I have two. I, I do too. Okay, my first one is vaccines. Uh, uh oh. And this is a this is a bit of like one of those headline grabs, but there's a point to the end. But two days after Trump touted Regeneron, which I'm sure everyone kind of knows about, um, an executive and a director sold a million dollars worth of shares. We've seen this play out probably ten different times throughout coronavirus. Um, 
now these well, isn't it share a, sales do have to be predetermined. But what is it called? A 501B plan or whatever it's called? Wh- whatever uh, where you have to like plan your sales. Yeah. Yes. But you can I mean, you can plan more and you can know yeah. sort of what's coming. Also, um, yeah, because it's a long-term pipeline. I think of what, six months is the deal you have to set out. It's like six months in advance, which is, is it six? spring, I think. I think it's, yeah, six months. Anyway, the, the, the note was this year $248 million in stock has been sold versus the previous two years where the average was $142 million. Mm, the um, average? That's not a great sign. No, it's not a... It's not great. And it's not it's not like they sold ten times as much, but it's not good. And it's not, you know, people are like, oh, that could be coincidence, whatever. But and they're like, why wouldn't you sell your stock if you knew that your vaccine or your therapeutic was going to be helpful? Wouldn't you keep your shares? No, that is a uh, that is a good point, Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> but no. so it's like, I mean, isn't it like the just the biggest red flag when that? That much is being sold versus prior years. Yeah, I mean, there's no way anyone, um, if you want to invest in quality companies and you're trying to not invest in index funds, I just, and if you have a long term focus, just stay away from these. Stay away from the vaccine. Stay away from the vaccine companies. Just don't even touch them. I know it's enticing to get that get rich quick scheme, but it's just not, it's a good way to lose all your money as well. You got to think of the downside. Yeah, I, I just thought that was. I don't know. It's been a problem for like a few. You know, it's happened multiple times. Now. It, I think it Moderna irks. had the same thing. Yeah, it irks me. Um, and they pump it on CNBC. It's it's annoying. Okay, Larry Ellison is also in hot water. This week, findings showed that he donated two hundred fifty thousand dollars to a super PAC supporting Lindsey Graham's reelection, which is whatever. I think most people knew that he was friends with Trump and yeah, know, he's all got the, yeah one of the generally yeah. conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have any problem with donations, but. This was literally hours after they won the bid for the TikTok acquisition. And Lindsey Graham was the one who was saying to Trump, you know, let an American company buy them out. And he was literally quoted saying, if TikTok is saved, you can thank me. That's what Lindsey Graham said. And then he got the donation hours after the TikTok thing. Technically, that isn't illegal. I mean, it's it's it's, like legal bribery. Yeah, it's suspicious. Doesn't it just like frustrate you like don't you want a ceo that has nothing to do with politics yeah i uh, yeah uh, i agree a lot i agree 100 percent with that i can um, ne- like i could never be <sighs> i could never be an investor in a larry ellison company no i mean i guess Definitely the bigger not. you get as a ceo you're just warped into politics no matter what kind of but i don't know it's tough it's tough uh it's a tough look um and as we know you know if you're if you're one of the big dogs uh you kind of get to do what you want he is also a board member of Tesla, so and it, yeah, he well he, also backs Theranos, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and as people may know, if you're a new listener, you might not know we are not fans of Tesla, so we land on that side of the fence. Um, oh, and so far, yeah. you know, Larry Ellison's turned a billion dollars into six billion investing in Tesla, but I mean, that might be a rude awakening for people that didn't know we were sort of Tesla bears. But yeah, if you're sorry, new, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, just like politics, don't uh, don't just hate us because we don't like Tesla. We're really like we're kind of we actually are really big growth investors typically. But uh, yeah. all yeah. right, uh, what do you have? Hot water. Okay, SoftBank update. Got to have this one headline here. Uh, this is actually just from an hour ago. SoftBank stock trading strategy is said to focus on Q3 earnings. That's the whole headline. Okay, so they're gonna be <laughs> if they do straddles. If they start straddling Facebook or whatever, 
This could end in... Have you ever seen a positive SoftBank headline? Not for the last few years. Not for the last few years. <laughs> ever. So, like, I feel like Masa-san might... He's either... There's no in-between. He's either a genius or an absolute idiot that just got insanely lucky. But I think he's just a big risk taker. Just a huge risk taker. Okay. What's your second one? Uh, the I don't need to use his real name, but you remember the Bubble Bubble person? The, oh, yeah. the, the person that said I would... Uh, take a thousand dollars for calls during the middle of march total scumbag right yes. um he's back on twitter october 17th he came back said uh-huh. and i quote here i need to step away and gather my thoughts after an extreme buildup and frustration with the futility of trying to cut through the incredible amounts of propaganda disinformation and misinformation in today's media so i think this he's guy back. dude he has lost so much money for so many people it's just it's bad if it's the guy i'm thinking of he had a rough go of it. Yeah. And you know what? It was all fine. You can be as bearish as you want, but then when but don't you say, take people's, I'm taking yeah. $1,000 yeah. for a one-hour call to tell oh, yeah. you why everything's a bubble, I mean, you got to know you're going to get eaten alive on Twitter at that point. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> it's right. just so, disconcerting. That's my, yeah, that's, that's my last one. one. Okay. Fuck, Mary kill. The, we- the theme this week is brick and mortar category leaders. So it's kind of playing off Gavin Baker's article. Okay. Costco, Home Depot, Walmart. I don't know what they're trading at because I think that is important for these companies. I'm gonna marry. I'm gonna okay. I know who I'm killing. That's Walmart, just because I like Costco and Home Depot a ton. Uh, yeah, I probably have a problem with Walmart, but I, I don't gosh, like I'd marry both Costco and Home Depot. But in the time type. being, I think I will marry Home Depot and fuck Costco. I don't know why. I might flip. I might flip there. Is yeah, it's it's a fine line. I think either one. Yeah. I like both a lot. Um, they're probably not making it into my portfolio just because they're big names that I don't think there's really much of an advantage in. Uh, but they've been some of the best performing stocks, and they have quite the competitive advantage over yeah, the compo- over, over others. Um. All right. Anecdotal evidence. Then, do you want to go first? Yeah, I can go. All right. Um, this is a scenario for you. It's a real scenario. Okay. Um, it's currently happening. AMC, the theater company, their 2025 bonds are trading at 66 cents on the dollar. If you were a bond trader, and this is anecdotally, before looking at all the numbers mm-hmm. and thinking about how theaters are going to look like, would that entice you? Now, remember, bondholders are the first ones that get paid. So. Yeah. I, I like... The theater experience. Like, I, I always I have. I've been, like, a big advocate for it, and... I, My thoughts is I would like to go back to a theater, so... Yeah, and I feel and like I think a people, lot of people do. Yeah, the only problem is, is, like, they aren't showing high-quality movies right now, right? Yeah, no, so it's the a production's thing. a problem, and if the production is basically their supply chain, they've their supply chain is dry, they can't show... I mean, I love the experience, but yeah, they're in a pretty shitty spot. Yeah. I think if I was a bond trader, that's something that would be very interesting to me. Interesting to me, though. It's not something I'm going to invest in because I don't know anything about bonds, really. Uh, but I think another point to make is that someone will buy them out. Netflix could. Disney so, could. They could try to vertically integrate with that. It um, might be more like a charity act. Yeah. It, like, wasn't that sort of what Bezos did with the Washington Post? Yeah, and then, but in that situation, I think the bondholders might get made whole unless they file for bankruptcy. But I don't know. I feel like, like 
America doesn't want to let the theaters die. Yeah, it's true. They're also selling uh, right now. You can get a whole theater um, if you're, I guess, a wealthy family for ninety nine bucks, and you can rent out a whole <laughs> theater right now. I don't think you have to be that wealthy of a family. <laughs> I guess ninety nine bucks. Well, I mean, you gotta be, you know, you gotta have some disposable income for one night. Spend a hundred bucks. Yeah, That's but, just I mean, for you the can ticket. Get together with like five people, twenty bucks. But it's only theater. for one family. Yeah. Oh right. So it has like to be pilot, right. Yeah, one family. Interesting. Okay, my anecdotal evidence. I had Starbucks this morning. Oh great! Wow, what a what an anecdotal evidence here. I think McDonald's black coffee is better than Starbucks, and mm-hmm. I might have mentioned that before, but just generally, after going to Starbucks, I've gone probably twice in the last like two weeks. I think it's gonna have a tough go of it for the next. Decade? Five years. Ten yeah. years. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we were doing a scenario comparing Altria to Starbucks where, like, Altria's revenues or, well, revenues might be declining by, like, 1%, 2%, and the operating income's flat and cash flows are flat. Um, and Starbucks is growing at, like, what, 4% with the same sort of debt structure? Um, and they might not, they're probably not going to be growing at 4%. Indefinitely. For the next three or four years. I mean, people aren't going into the store as much. Yeah. I don't know. Well, they have that loyalty program, which is nice. That's a big plus for the app. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, Less? Starbucks is something that's not enticing me, especially when it trades at 30 times earnings and someone like Altria trades at eight. Yeah, I mean, there there's less people going to work, less people, you know, staying in the restaurant, or not restaurant, but the store itself yeah. and working. It just, uh, they're going to be in a tough spot. Like, Oh, yeah. Not to mention McDonald's black coffee is better. Yeah, yeah. The so st- go sit in the McDonald's and do your studies, whatever it is. Yeah, the Starbucks still has that, uh, what do they call it, the atmosphere. A lot of people like the atmosphere, but yeah, it's tough. No way I'm investing in Starbucks unless it gets really, really cheap. Yeah, which I believe is possible because it Could- happened like two years ago. Yeah, when they had a tough, I mean, yeah, we both invested in it, not to brag, but we both did pretty well with that one. Um, um that's, that's it. it. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's it for me. Okay, yep. Yeah. Uh, that's going to do it. Thank you guys for listening. We have our YouTube channel, so check it out. Mm-hmm. We've been getting maybe some more positive comments. That's <laughs> sort of not death threats, but you know, some <laughs> hate comments. Thank you to Beth again. Yeah, thanks again, Beth, for coming on the show. Uh, feel free to follow us on Twitter. You can email us. It's chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com for any show recommendations. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.